Welcome to the Summer Series of Politics and Psychology, where every Sunday we'll have special episodes of interesting interviews and fun conversations. With over 2 million followers on social media, Nicole and Jemmy has become the internet's go-to resource for education about anatomy, death, and disease. She is a board-certified cytotechnologist and a pathologist assistant, and she shares on Instagram and YouTube and everywhere else on social media her over 20 years of experience to educate the public on the five manners of death, and she also shares thousands of posts showing death, near-death, accidents, preventable, and non-preventable diseases to help us and every other everyday person live better and healthier. So now let's welcome and learn from Nicole and Jemmy. Okay, thank you so much, Nicole, for being on the show. I'm very excited about this interesting topic of pathology and death and autopsy. So thank you and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right. So I'm sure everyone is always asking you, but how did you become, and I know I'm familiar with your background, but how did you, for the rest of everyone listening, become impassioned about pathology? Well, I first started out not really knowing what I wanted to do with my life. So I went to community college just to become a nurse because back in the 90s, that was like what women did. <laughs> um, yeah. So I thought, okay, I could go get I could go get a job being a nurse and, and have a good solid income for myself and my daughter. I was a single mom at the time. Mm-hmm. And I started college and then I realized quickly that I really liked the the microscope in the biology class. And then I instantly fell in love with that right away. So it's really easy for me to know that I wanted to be a scientist within like really the first day. Oh, okay. Um, And I, and I knew I didn't want to be a nurse because I, I asked my teacher, is there a job I could get just working in a lab and looking in the microscope all day and, she introduced me to this whole world of the medical lab. Mm. So um, I was into that right away. And then I went to school for cytopathology, which is looking at cells under the microscope. And like pap smears is the most common thing people are familiar with. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I was the one that looked at them under the microscope. And that's a division of the pathology department. And that's how I got introduced to the whole world of pathology, I was working one day and it smelled really bad. And there was this big commotion in the hallway. And I went out there to see what was going on and to see what the smell was. And here they said that the leg refrigerator broke. Oh my. (laughs) I was like, what's, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of in my own little world a lot. So I said, you know, what, what's the leg refrigerator? What are you talking about? And uh, they took me back to this lab and showed me that there was a refrigerator that had amputated legs in it. Wow. Like with gangrene and stuff. And I then I was introduced to the whole world of uh, just gross pathology. And Mm -hmm. that's how I got into wanting to dissect organs and doing autopsies and stuff. Okay, well, that's interesting. I'm I'm a big believer in purpose and sometimes just going off of one inkling of what you like can lead you to the next step and you ask, okay, well, then what about this instead And until you get more fine-tuned into what you really, really would love to do? And I'm glad that you were able to be courageous to just ask. 
I guess it's unfortunate that there was, I guess, the existence of a leg refrigerator. Like, okay, so then is there a toe refrigerator? That would be, <laughs> I would have been odd, you know, about that. Well, okay. the, Go ahead. the legs, I mean, there has to be a refrigerator for the legs because they're so large. So most of the specimens oh. that we're able to put in jars of formaldehyde, but you can't really put a leg in that much. It's just, it's too bulky. So we have to keep it in the refrigerator so it doesn't decompose just sitting on the the shelf. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. So can you, I guess, start us off with what do you love more? The pathology part for being behind the microscope and looking at the cells or actually working on the, the body pieces? So the I I like the body pieces more, which is why I left cytology because that was a pretty cush job. In fact, one of the pathologists that I worked for said to me, are you sure you want to work over here? You're able to sit in a cubicle with your nice crisp white lab coat and be clean mm-hmm. all day. And this is, there's a lot of poop. There's a lot of blood. <laughs> and yeah, I, I went over to that and I enjoy that the most. And that's in fact... Someone asked me on Instagram last night if uh, if I ever wanted to be a doctor. And that's how I know I didn't want to be a doctor because I much preferred, you know, having my hands dirty rather than just sitting there and looking at the slides all day. Right. Okay. So it's still the working with the humans, but when, you know, in a different capacity rather than being a nurse and rather than just looking at their cells. Yes. Okay. So I'm sure if there were, I have a 10 year old boy, so he would love to hear about poop. So (laughs) what interesting poop stories do you have when you're doing the autopsies? So I have, I have a, I also have two other children. One is 10 and one's eight. So we also talk about (laughs) poop all this. Um, Well, I mean, if you think about it, people eat all day and then a lot of people die unexpectedly. They don't know they're going to die or they don't know they're going to have an emergency surgery that they have to get their colon taken out in a couple hours. Mm. And everything that they ate for from the last time they went to the bathroom, not even before that, because everything doesn't come out every single time you eat, mm. um, is still in people's colon. So when we do autopsy, we have to take it out and it's full of poop a lot. Oh, wow. And does it smell worse than when people are alive and doing it? I guess because it's extra decomposed. Um, Yeah, sometimes it does. Sometimes I, I don't know. I just have this thing that when something gross is happening to a person that's alive, it seems a lot more gross to me when you're doing yeah. an autopsy. They're dead and they're kind of supposed to be gross. So it doesn't right. bother me as much. Okay. I can can relate to that. Yeah, I can relate to that. When I used to work in the psychiatric hospital, you know, someone throwing a chair at me on the street might be a different situation. But, you know, in the, you know, psychiatric ward, it's like, oh, okay. All right, Mr. Jones, let's just go sit back down. So I, I could see that. So can you take us through the process of autopsy for just a normal death, meaning an older person just died of natural causes? What does that look like? So that's the pathology is split up into manners of death and it's natural homicide, suicide, accident, and undetermined. And, and in the hospital, we only do autopsies on natural deaths, but as you know, people die, you know, people get shot and they die in the hospital. So those 
all of those cases would be considered forensics and they go to the medical examiner. So, okay. Yeah. So in a normal, and, and the medical examiner does a ton of natural deaths too, because let's say, for example, a person was found dead outside. Mm -hmm. Um, they don't know who they are. They don't know how they died and they will bring them into the medical examiner's office. And then they found out that, you know, they had a heart attack outside. So that's a natural death, but it's still suspicious that there's a person just laying on the street. So they do the autopsy. Okay. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. So then does everyone get an autopsy? No. So in the hospital, so it, it kind of depends on what environment you work in because I've worked in both academic hospitals and also just like private hospitals. Mm-hmm. But for academic hospitals, we had pathology residents that had to do like X amount of autopsies for their training. So we would actively, not really us in pathology, but more on the floor would actively try to recruit people to get their family member to autopsied. Just oh. say, hey, you know, this, this is a really rare disease that your, your father had. And it would really be helpful for us if we could do the autopsy because the medical students and the, the pathology residents would really learn a lot off of this. And, and so it always had to be granted permission by the legal next of kin. Okay. 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 So then the type of autopsies you do are in which category? More the disease? Yeah. Part of it? Okay. So sometimes there would be situations where we would have a person that died during a medical procedure, let's say, and then Mm -hmm. I would find something, even in the middle of the autopsy, I would find something that would be like, hey, this might be a mistake the doctor made during this procedure. That's why this person died. And then I like legally have to call the medical examiner and tell them I'm not supposed to touch the body until I get permission that I'm allowed to finish because it could be a medical legal case. Right. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So then um, a person dies of natural causes in the area that you specialize in. And then you do what? You just receive the body and then you just start working like from head to toe? So the the first thing that that I would really do is check the paperwork because that's the most important because there's always, you know, a sister, a kid, a husband, and you just want to make sure that the person that signed the consent for the autopsy mm-hmm. has read it, signed it, and it's the person that's allowed to be making that decision. Oh, very smart. Okay. Which happens a lot that because, you know, there's just a lot going on and people don't know that a person has a kid and this and that. So that before we even take out our scalpel blades. It's very much like, all right, all right, we're only allowed to do these parts, for example. So let's say a person has a heart attack. The family member might say, okay, you only can check their heart. I don't want you touching the rest of their body. Oh. So, so technically, if I do like a full autopsy, that's going against their wishes and they could they could bring legal action against the hospital. So we just always do this timeout thing that we're like, this is the patient we're cutting. This this is the patient. Their tags match the chart, and then this is the right next to kin sign the paperwork. And we and we are doing a full autopsy. We're only doing brain. We're only doing this. Like we say it out loud to each other, so we're all okay. on the same page that we're doing the right thing. Oh, okay, okay. That is good legal protection. Making sure everyone is understanding what's happening. Okay, so then if you were to do as you mentioned, like a heart, so. 
when I've seen pictures, they do like a why is that how it starts or do you do something different based off the organ that you are looking to examine? Well, most of the times the the autopsies are full autopsies. Okay. It, it's like it rarely happens when they say do heart only or, you oh, know, okay. like, but okay. it does happen. But yeah, in general, we do a Y incision for a full autopsy because that allows us to make incisions that we can access the entire thoracic and abdominal cavities as well mm. as hide the the incisions so when a, if a person wants to have a funeral viewing they can okay so then with a full autopsy is it possible for i guess like in an elementary way to explain what that process is like how you start the process and then when it's concluded like walking us through it yeah so first i i would take the the all of the when people die in the hospital they go into the refrigerator there's a big like walk-in refrigerator like you would see it at a restaurant i mean it's the same thing. and okay. um the, all the bodies going even bodies that are going to the medical examiner's office bodies that are just going to the funeral home without autopsy they all go to the refrigerator mm. and um depending on the size of hospital it's I've worked at two hospitals that are similar in size. There's usually about like six, like six people in there at a time every day. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Rotating through, you know. Yeah. And there's been times, though, that there's more, uh, there's less. It just, but, but for the most part, that's on average. And um, so I'll take the body out of the fridge. And the first thing that I do is obviously, like I just said, check the toe tag and everything, make sure it's the right person. And then we do what's called an external exam. And then we look for a couple things. We look for changes that you normally see with death, like uh, rigor mortis and liver mortis. Um, we look for medical interventions, like do they have a trach tube? Do they have lines in? And then um, we just look for the overall state of health of the patient. Like, mm -hmm. do they look their stated age? Do they look like they're overweight, underweight, like things like that. And um, we document all of that stuff. We write it all down. Okay. Just, just everything is to just kind of cover your ass in a way and, and yeah. <laughs> make sure that what you're seeing is what they, they saw on the floor and everything is because, uh, and sometimes we take pictures, but really only in the hospital autopsy, like, so for forensic autopsies, they take a lot more pictures. Mm -hmm. um, but in the hospital, we, we really only do if, if there's something that's, that's um, like a cool pathology or something that would um, be like beneficial for education, basically. Okay. Um, and, but yeah, so then we'll do all that documentation and stuff. And then the next thing that I would do, I would already have my tools all set up too, by the way. I already, I have that all ready to go before um, put, and then we slide the body over to the autopsy table and I would do a Y incision. Mm -hmm. And that basically is like a V across the uh, rib cage and then a line that goes straight down all the way to the pubic bone, but kind of go around the belly button. Mm -hmm. And that allows us to just reflect the skin and expose the the abdominal cavity and the chest cavity and then i would next after doing that i would cut the rib i basically take the whole entire top of the rib cage off oh wow and, what does that um, mean the top of it like if you touch your chest with your hand 
-hmm. like the whole entire front of your body ribs from oh. from like under your armpits yeah the whole entire oh, wow. rib cage. yeah so i take that off either with um a bone saw or we have like you're gonna think this is weird but we get like <laughs> lopping shears from like home depot that cut oh my goodness <laughs> Oh wow. Okay. They really work the best. I personally like to use those the most because um when you use the bone saw, it kind of cuts blood vessels and stuff and can cause mm. a lot of blood to pour into the, the cavities that surround the lungs. Okay. And we're trying to see if there is fluid accumulation and stuff there. With that's mm -hmm. like part of our exam. So it might falsely like put blood into there that's not supposed right. to be there. Okay. Um but at this point, it's like I've done so many. I you just know like what, what what, what looks like whatever. And and like some sometimes there's just like people don't have those shears, so you just have to use a bone saw, whatever. But we take we take off the ribs, and then you have all of the, the at that point you have all of the organs exposed from the thoracic cavity and the abdominal and pelvic cavity, and then. The next thing I do is just kind of do a peek around to see if things look normal or if things don't look normal, mm -hmm. um, which usually they don't if they're, you know, if they're, you. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but sometimes the, it's not always though. Like sometimes you just look at somebody and you're, you just, you think like, oh my God, they just look so healthy. It's so whatever. Yeah. Um, and then I start going, I have a, a specific process I do for most of them but mm -hmm. then sometimes there's just all these different variations like if someone had a heart transplant I would approach it differently if someone had like pancreas cancer I might take the organs out differently it just all depends on kind oh. of what I'm looking for okay. but for the most part I take out the heart first and I look for like I open the pericardial sac and I look for a pulmonary embolism first I mm. like to do that because once you start cutting things out, it's kind of hard to find things great. Okay. So if I check it like while it's in the body still, that's the best. Cause if someone, um, if someone just drops dead, mm -hmm. there, there's only like a few things that cause people to just drop dead. And most of them are cardiovascular things like a stroke or a pulmonary embolism. So I just, I'll check that first. Cause that's like probably, one of the most common things that's going to cause somebody to drop dead. Okay. Um, but, but I just do that all the time anyway. Then I take out. Sure. Wow. Okay. And usually, so when I'm doing an autopsy, usually there's pathology residents with me. Mm -hmm. And um, so I usually take out the organs and then hand them over to them and they weigh them and they start. Oh, dissecting them. okay. Okay. Is now, there, a normal weight for how much a deceased heart should weigh for an adult? Yeah. yeah. So a female heart should weigh about 250 to 300 grams and a male heart should weigh like 300 to 350 grams. But oh. that's like, that's just for like average weight people. Mm -hmm. But then there's okay. always so many variations because if a person's obese, you would expect their heart to be a little bit bigger Mm -hmm. Or if a, a if a female has like a really small frame, you would expect them to. I, I've seen hearts that are like 150 grams on a grown woman, you know. Oh wow, because she's so tiny. Yeah, it's like okay. like a little old lady. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, 
But the okay. weights are important because because if you weigh a heart and it's 700 or 800 grams, that's that's never good. It's always right. okay. pathology there. So that's why we we do that. But something like the colon, we wouldn't weigh because it varies because it's filled with poop sometimes and sometimes it's not. So it doesn't really have a true weight, whereas the mm. heart does, if that okay. makes sense. Sense. And what about the brain? Does that have a different weight for male versus female? Yeah, male brain is a little bit heavier than a female brain. But oh. we do weigh them. But and again, you could tell like if a, if a brain weighs more, it might have like edema or like fluid in it. But the, mm -hmm. the brain weight is never really as important as the the heart and the lungs like when 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 you see these discrepancies in weight you you know that there's something going on there without even looking at it under the microscope basically okay okay just because it it weighs way more than it should okay oh wow that's really interesting okay so go ahead um so then you're cutting them open um looking for the organs or for abnormalities while the body while the organ is still within the body and then what else yeah, so there's different, we have all different ways that you could take them out. And it just, it, it usually just depends, depends on the place that you're doing the autopsy at. Like when I was in training at Penn, my mentor had us take out all of the organs in one block. So we would mm. take it all the way from like the thyroid up in the neck, all the way down into the bladder and rectum and take all the organs out in one piece and put them on a cutting board and then look at them that way. Oh, okay. Okay. And what is your preferred method now that you are out of training? Well, I, I do like a combination of both. <laughs> mm -hmm. I like to do, I take out the heart by itself. I take out the lungs by itself, by themselves. And then, um, but then like I take out a majority of the GI tract intact I just mm. do like a whole, I have like a whole system, but that was something I learned on training at Penn as well too. Cause they did things a couple different ways. They, cause they were training us how to do autopsies. So they were showing us how to do it all the different ways. Okay. Uh, but when the residents are there, they need to, they need to write the autopsy reports and everything. And really they're the main doctors that are there. There's always an attending physician that's on every case too, but they usually aren't in the morgue the entire time we're doing the autopsy. Mm -hmm. So, um, but you, in most cases, the PAs or the people that are doing the autopsies have obviously way more experience because we do them all the time and we're helping train the residents too. So we hand them the organs and then, they dissect them and we help them out with like the anatomy and what they what they're looking at. If they see something abnormal, we tell them if it's like a normal anatomic variation or say like, oh, that's weird. You, we save that aside. Let's show the doc, the attending physician that, you know. OK. Um, but yeah. So then once all the organs are out and stuff, then I so, well, I have to like clean up the body a little bit because I don't like to send the body back to the funeral home like dirty. It's, yeah. it's it, but it's kind of impossible to not have it be a little bit, but I clean up the body and um, I kind of stuff it, the organs. Well, it depends because we, we do save some organs. Okay. So even when we send the body to the funeral home, like we keep some at the hospital oh. be because 
let's say, for example, we see something weird under the microscope in a couple days and we want to look at more of the lung. Well, like we can't if we give it all back. So you have, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So we keep like little jars with the autopsy numbers, just not, we don't usually ever keep like a whole organ. Mm -hmm. Um, well, we do for the brain because that's like a whole other thing, but we'll just keep like pieces of the lung that showed pathology, for example. So then like if for whatever reason, the slide doesn't come out good, we could always make a, a better one with more tissue that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, but the rest of it, we throw in like a red biohazard bag. And then I just kind of tighten that up, put that inside the body and then sew the body back up. So the funeral home has. Oh, wow. Body. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. Okay. So, so first you're doing the Y incision, you're opening the body, cutting off the ribs, which I didn't know that. Um, so then when you do do that, is it everything just right in front of you? You can easily see and take out, or do you have to move things around to get it? Oh no, you have to you have to move things around, and it's 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 that's why we have a, a lot of training with anatomy because it's we okay. don't want to cut through certain structures, especially if we're trying to look for. Let's say we're trying to look for a, a rupture or something in the esophagus. Like you, you have to take it out in a certain way so you could really examine it intact to see mm. exactly what happened. And and as you're doing the autopsy, you're just constantly like thinking about that stuff all the time. And it it becomes riding a bike for me at this point, just because yeah. I I know uh, where where to cut where where to pull out where, but it's very, it's very a methodical process that we're doing and, and looking for things along the way, kind of, as we take them out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So then when you, um, stuff it back, so you meant by putting it in the red biohazard bags, putting it back inside the body, is there a certain way you position it or it's just whatever, where they, where the organ originally was? No. Um, so when you take all the organs out of the body, it's basically mm-hmm. like a shell. That's it. Oh, it's just a okay. big open cavity because everything this, this is like interesting that you're asking me this because I guess regular people don't understand like what your organs look like inside your body. But mm-hmm. remember I was telling you when you can cut out the whole entire organs in one piece. Right. Right. If you, if you cut, all I, I have to make a cut at the top where the throat is and then a cut at the bottom where the bladder is. If I just make two more incisions on the side mm-hmm. and also cutting through the diaphragm, mm-hmm. I could take every single organ out of the body and peel it like right off of the backbone. Oh, wow. So they're all like centrally located kind yeah. of, if that okay. makes any sense. Yes, it does. Okay. Wow. So, yeah. So when you take them out, it's just, all it is, is just your, it's like a shell. It's just your back, the back of your ribs and open mm-hmm. shell. There's nothing there. So um, okay. I just put the, the bag, the, red trash bag it's mm-hmm. you know biohazard bag into the body um and it's a huge bag of organ <laughs> it's it, oh it's okay heavy. so it's one whole bag and you're putting it back inside yeah it's probably organs. oh yeah it's probably okay. like 
it's probably like I would say like 40 pounds. Like it's a heavy Oh bag. wow. It's all the organs, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um and it's the colon, it's it's just it's a heavy bag. Like yeah. I if I lift it up, I kind of have to exert some energy to like lift it and put it in. Mm -hmm. And it's mm. it's big volume wise. So oftentimes it's it's funny because when I'm trying to sew the body up, it's like the bag's trying to pop through right. <laughs> the incision because it's oh, just fitting, yeah. you know? Okay. Um, and then when when the body goes to the funeral home, they take it out and they like put some chemical on it. So, mm -hmm. but they do put it back inside the body. They just put this chemical on it so it doesn't continue to decompose, just so it doesn't smell if the person's having oh. a viewing. Okay. Um, okay. And then, yeah, then I just, I sew them up with, um, you know, a needle and thread basically and wipe them down as much as possible and then put them, well, put the, put the rib cage on before I sew them up. Obviously. Yeah. That was my next question. So then do, does yeah. the rib cage come back on there? Okay. Yeah. We put, oh. we're really, really like try to put every single part of the person back with the person because people, mm -hmm. people want that <laughs> you know yeah. we only take we take the small pieces now in some cases when we take the brain out this is actually almost every case at least at hospital autopsies we have certain pathologists that are called neuropathologists that specialize in brain pathology mm -hmm. so they like they want the brain and we have to put it in a special formaldehyde mix for for up to a week or two to get the brain really really hard so they oh. can cut it in like really good. So I'm sure you've seen. Oh, it. yes. Yes. Well, yes. And our bio basis. Yes, I do remember that. Okay. Oh, so, that's how they do that. Yeah. Okay. And it's, so normally we use a, a neutra buffered formalin for most organs, which is like a watered down formaldehyde. Because I don't know if you've ever been around formaldehyde, but it's it's just yeah. so nasty. It burns your yes. face like really bad. Um, But we add like more straight formaldehyde because it causes the brain to float as it's fixing. So it doesn't show any oh. um, artifact, which would be like, if you were looking for a herniation or something, like you don't want it leaning against the specimen container for like two weeks while mm. it's fixing, because then it'll have a dent in it, but it's, it's an artifact dent. It's not like real. Okay. Okay. Um, so, like, when you see those, like, Frankenstein movies, that's what those jars are. It's organs just floating inside the formaldehyde. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, so now you mentioned cutting the brain. So, in Hannibal Lecter, you know, he cut the person's head off and or the scalp off, and he sliced the brain. <laughs> so, if you had to think about, and then, of course, he ate it. But if you had to think about the texture of meat, what would it be like to slice a non-formaldehyde brain? What texture of meat is that? Oh, it's like jello. Oh, really? Yeah, it's really, really soft. It's so soft and so fragile. It's very hard to take it out and keep it completely intact. It, it wow. We had to learn a lot about how to get it out the right way because you could just... It's It's really, it's really amazing how soft it is. And then... You have other things too, like people or vents and stuff. Like the the brain could be way softer if they have some kind of pathology going on. But in general, like in a regular average person, it's still very very soft. Oh wow! So what would be the the toughest or the hardiest organ? Um, the liver probably. Okay, I would say. Okay. 
Um, it goes through so much. Yeah, it's like it. I mean, it's like it's so it's very solid. The lung because the lungs are like spongy, you know. Mm, okay. Um, so the liver, it like the solid organs, like the liver, kidneys, spleen. They they're the most um. Yeah, like if you if you dropped a brain on the floor, it would it would get damaged. Oh wow! Okay, because it's so soft. Dropped, yeah, like if you drop the liver on the floor, probably not. It's okay. really rubbery. Like it's, oh wow! Yeah, okay. it's pretty firm. Okay, so then one other question. So then, if you were to suddenly, you know, maybe a um, a pregnant mother was in an, an accident. How would you go about doing an autopsy when there's a body within a body? So I've done an autopsy on a pregnant person that died at a hospital at the hospital from natural causes. Mm. And well, I I mean, I feel like it was like negligence, but ultimately it was natural causes, I guess. Okay. Anyway, um I did the autopsy and I had no idea what to expect, obviously, because I've never I never did an autopsy on a pregnant person before and yeah. wasn't really sure because I, at that time I was pregnant once mm. al already, but so, and my belly was huge. So I just assumed that the uterus would be right underneath of the skin there. Mm -hmm. And when I did the incision, I mean, she was a little, um, she had, she was obese too. So that, that made it a little bit different, okay. but, um, when I opened her belly, it it was like I couldn't even find the uterus. It was hidden underneath of the fat in her belly. Right. And it was just not what I was expecting at all. I was okay. expecting the uterus to be kind of very prominent there. And I and it was it was pretty small compared to what I thought it was going to look at, like, okay. I guess, because. I guess you don't think about it, but when people are pregnant, it's like all the, it's not just like the uterus that's sticking out, but it like also protrudes more organs. So it just, mm -hmm. it, it appears true. to be this huge size when it's like, a, it's really just kind of smaller. So, um, yeah, I, we, so I found the uterus. I took the fetus out it was full term. It was, I think it was like 39 weeks. It was a full term. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was oh, pretty, it was pretty full term. And um, so then we do the autopsy. So then that put the baby aside that to me, that's like now you have two separate autopsies. You're going to do yeah. that one like you would do any other fetal autopsy, including mm -hmm. examining the placenta. And then mm -hmm. you're going to do this one like any other autopsy, except you're going to spend like extra attention to the uterus and like what's going on there. Right. And okay. um. Like normally if we had like, let's say we had like a 60 year old female, we would look at the uterus and we would look at it, we would look at it grossly. And then we would also look at it microscopically, just maybe like a, mm -hmm. like a one piece just to be like, oh, hey, there's no tumor here or whatever. Right. But for that case, especially because she died while she's pregnant and that should never happen. Yeah. And it, it was like a lot of attention to the uterus in that case. So is the autopsy process for a baby the same as an adult? No. So um, that's a good question because when we when we do a fetus or a baby, um, it's a lot different of a process because they can be born with all sorts of congenital things that yeah. you have like a 68-year-old person that's dead. Chances are they didn't have 
like mm-hmm. a congenital defect because they lived to be 68 years old. So it didn't like, it wasn't what really killed them. Right. Right. Here. It, it's important for so many reasons because, and, and the biggest one is like the parents want answers. Um, well, mm-hmm. not in this case, but you, if you're a mom that has a miscarriage, yeah. a late miscarriage, you want answers because you want to make sure that if you have another baby, that this doesn't happen again. And we really have to make sure they don't have some kind of weird genetic thing or like a anatomic defect that got missed on ultrasound. We, we, we do um, match up with the records that through their prenatal records and things like that. Um, This particular patient that I did the autopsy on actually died at another hospital and we, the, the family didn't want the autopsy done there. So we did it at our hospital. And um, so I didn't really have too much access to the, to records. what her prenatal records were. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so um, yeah, so we'll do. And with the fetus, it is just a lot different because we do a lot of measurements to make sure like, okay, she's stating that she's 39 weeks. Is, is the baby matching up to 39 weeks gestational age? Like okay. things like that. Um, and we uh, at Children's Hospital, they do x-rays to see if the bones are, are look the right side. They do oh, way more wow. thorough x-ray or uh, autopsies at the Children's Hospital, obviously. Okay. Um, oh, yeah, it's a children's hospital. Okay. Yeah, and that okay. was part of my training. I did that, and it's it's a little too uh, meticulous for, for me, but, like, yeah, I had a problem with one of my kids. I would want them to go there, obviously. Yeah. So one of the things that I really admire, you know, this is Politics and Psychology is the podcast. The summer series is more of a, a different aspect on life, but I really liked when I was researching your work how you were really focused and committed to explaining miscarriages and the process of that to help other women who had gone through that process know that they are not alone. So I definitely applaud you for that. And if you could think of one or two of the successes or the biggest impacts that you've had through your awareness on Instagram, and I will make sure we have all of your channels and social media handles on the YouTube description, but what would you say would be one of your greatest impact from you studying death to those who are still living? One of the, the biggest thing, I know the biggest thing that I've gotten feedback on is my awareness of the dangers of using tobacco. Oh. And um, I get emails very often that say that people stopped smoking and because of the pictures and the information I was giving. And that makes me really happy because I think uh, when you, when you work in pathology, you really get to, you really get to see a side of the world that nobody else gets to see. Mm -hmm. And like, and it's reality. It's not whatever is some altered thing. It's reality. You're, you're seeing it. And, um, I, I, that was one of the things that blew my mind the most when I went to school was just how many, Cause, cause prior to going to school, I thought, okay, if you smoke, you get lung cancer. Right. right. And then I found out that you can get like 10 other cancers are associated with cigarette smoking along with like cardiovascular. There's just so many, it, it just ruins your body so bad. So, so bad. And I, I try to show that with every pathology that someone's looking at to be like, Hey, 
Guess what mm-hmm. else is a risk factor of this? Cigarette smoking. Cigarettes. It's it's a common theme. Like, I mm. I honestly have an opinion that if people didn't smoke cigarettes, the, the death rate would be so much uh, lower. Lower and 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 that's up to and including what happened with COVID. And so you know, it's like people are oh, yeah. starting with a baseline of being of having this and. Um, so that was, that's one of the biggest things is the, the smoking. And, um, uh, again, I'm very big on talking about obesity. I know it's not like really mm-hmm. popular right now because you're not allowed to talk about it or whatever, but well, we definitely talk about the truth in science here and obesity is a diagnosis for a reason. It has met, you know, multiple health complications. So definitely speak freely. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I feel like okay to talk about it because I don't, I don't like to candy coat things, but yes, I, I just found, so my, this is like being honest with my personal life. Like my mom, my mom was pretty overweight when she was 50 mm-hmm. and that's when I was just in school and just, and, and, and done doing all auto- and uh done school and just doing a ton of autopsies and all a lot of the autopsies I had were like these like 55 to 60 year old women that were obese. And and I used to tell my mom like how scared I was. I wanted her to lose weight. I mean, she was, she was like two, she weighed like 220. She was considered obese, but not like super obese, you know, but Mm -hmm. I, and that's how most of these women were. They were like, you would look at them and be like, oh, they're not, they're just like a, a size 16 or 18 or something. They're not that huge. And it, mm. it, and I saw that, that they were dying from, from like, oh, they had a pre-diabetes or cardiovascular mm. stuff, high blood pressure, this and that. And all these are like comorbidities that are associated with, with. That's a, right. Obesity. Yeah. And, and I used to, um tell my mom all the time that I was worried that she was just going to, that she was going to die because I just kept seeing this over and over. And it, it is, it is a theme that you see, if I could sit there and say how many people I'm autopsying and stuff, most of them are at at very least overweight, if not obese. Oh, wow. So I talk about it still, even though people yell at me and (laughs) Mm -hmm. whatever, I I don't care. Cause to me, it's like, this is what it is. And I'm not, I'm I'm not candy coating it. It's it, and it's interesting because I was just I was just down at the boardwalk with my husband and my family, and I I just was looking around, thinking like how most people are are considered obese, like so many mm-hmm. in in that setting at least. And then my brother had just went to to London, and he came home the same exact day and told me that he was he notice he noticed in in london that people were not as heavy as they are here oh wow okay it was just like an observation he made he just thought it was he's like i don't i don't see the same thing i see around here you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so um i like to tell people and it's not about i don't care how people look it's not that but i know what's going on inside and it's the visceral fat is just so dangerous so i try to I try to educate about that and show cases of how your your liver can get infiltrated with fat. There's so much fat around your heart. It can't beat properly. Like that's the kind of stuff I oh, like. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is interesting. I didn't think about that. So when you mentioned smoking, um, is vaping still as detrimental? Are you seeing an, in, an increase in those type of 
deaths as well or death related? So there are certain pathologies that can occur with vaping. One of them is called a popcorn lung um, mm. where you can get, you could, that's the kind of stuff that they're seeing more like mechanical things happening with the vape. Oh. But f- for me, it's like, it's hard to, it's hard to know because it's the same thing with marijuana too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of things that, that we want to just brush off and say like, it's safe, it's safe, whatever. <laughs> we we don't know until, until 20 years down the line. That's right. Longitudinal studies. Yes. And, um, and that's how I feel with weed too. Cause for example, and I used to, I, I'm like kind of anti-weed now, but I used to smoke weed all the time. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'll be honest with you with that. <laughs> okay. and, and, um, and then I had a, you know, I, I work with a lot of doctors and stuff and I had one of the doctors like sit me down and talk about it. And I was like, yeah, you know what you might, you, you're probably right. Like smoking anything, because if you, it, th- some, some countries have like an increase of uh, risk of cancer because of smoking meats. Like when you heat anything up, yeah, you've heard that, right? Yeah. And to me, it's like when you and it's barbecue season, so do tell. (laughs) I know. Well, I just I I just made barbecue last night too, and I I I try to get like not get crazy because I'm like this tastes so good. You just you just have to have it sparingly. (laughs) Okay. All right. Sorry. When you heat anything, it changes the chemical composition of that thing. Mm. So. So that's, and this is what one of the, uh, the urologists was trying to explain to me about weed. Like, he's just like, it's weed and, and all, but then when you heat weed, it, it's not weed anymore. It's, it's, it could be, it could turn into a carcinogen and Mm. back, let's say like 15 years ago, if I went to the doctor and they said, do you smoke or do you drink? You would say no, because like smoking weed was illegal, right? Right. That's <laughs> so you were right. like yeah. scared. Oh, the doctor's gonna call the cops and like yeah. I'm gonna get <laughs> so. Yeah. But now that it's legal and people can tell their doctor that they're smoking weed, I'm just curious what's going to happen in the next ten to fifteen years to see if that's mm-hmm. a contributing factor as well. I'm just especially with so many recreational marijuana use laws yeah. being passed. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Okay, and then if you could give any lesson or one lesson that you would give to us about life from your exposure, what would that lesson be? I just think it, it's it's the same thing of just, it seems like if you live in moderation, mm. and this can go, because I know you talk about politics and stuff in your thing too. If everybody was mm-hmm. just like like moderate with everything, Mm -hmm. Um, alcohol, like, so alcohol is, I think it's fine if you have a drink once in a while, but like, you can't drink every night. You can't drink five nights a week. Like you just, you can't, Yeah, it's the same with eating, right? You just, you could have a really fattening pasta meatball meal with bread. You just can't do it every day. If you just, Mm -hmm. if you just kind of stay moderate with everything, I think that, um, I, I feel like that's the stuff that I would see all the time, stuff that had to do with people that drank too much alcohol, people that smoked and people mm-hmm. that were heavy. That's like the three things. Mm-hmm. And, and you're in control of that. Like you, you look fine. at um, so many people are born with 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 pathology that they have no control over. Right. 
But these are the things that you can overindulgence, even if it's overindulgence in news and politics, the stress that can come from that. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I really appreciate your insights. It's very interesting. Um, I do, obviously, as a fellow science nerd, can really appreciate all that you can contribute and then making it so relatable to the general public, especially on your social media handles. So thank you for being on the show. And thank you to everyone for joining the Politics and Psychology Summer Series. And I look forward to meeting with you every Sunday this summer for these special episodes. Enjoy your summer. Like my favorite CD, cruising and it's just me in the front seat.